0: Welcome to the Whitewater Podcast. Stay tuned at the end of the message for church resources and more information about Whitewater. For now, let's dive into this week's message together.
1: Hey, friends and family. I'm so excited to introduce our guest speaker. All the way from the the bitter north in Canada and Toronto, we have a friend who's a pastor at a church up in Toronto. His name is Broxy Cavey. Broxy has become just a, a pastor I really respect and have learned so much from. Broxy has a family. His wife is Nina. He's got three daughters. He's written two books that I know about. One's called The End of Religion, the other one's called Reunion. And both books I think are incredible. They're really helpful for people who are exploring faith in Jesus or who have maybe been hurt by religion in the past and really introduced people to Jesus and learning how to follow Jesus and have a, a life centered on Jesus. One of the things I've personally learned from Bruxy Cavey is not just his message, which he's an incredible communicator. You guys are going to love his heart, but I, I love the way I've seen him uh, walk out his faith in such a Jesus-y way. He he has just a gentle way with people. He's extremely smart, he's able to articulate himself in some incredible ways, but the way he is with people is very just peaceful, loving, caring, and gentle. And I just think that's we need to see more of that in church leadership, and so I just have tremendous respect for my friend. Bruxy and his church, The Meeting House, come from an Anabaptist background. That doesn't mean anti-Baptist, it's Anabaptist. And it comes from a rich tradition that I think we can learn from. I think we can learn a lot about peacemaking, how to love our enemies, how to live a life of simplicity, and especially how to maintain unity in uh, times of tension. And all of these aspects of their tradition have been built up over the years around a discipleship to Jesus. Now Bruxy's going to be teaching a two-part series So the first part is today, and I want you to pay special attention to these three things. One is the power that Jesus has to unite us and how much stronger it is than forces that want to divide us. Second is how we can be a family of diversity, having different opinions and sometimes disagreeing, but but staying a family that loves each other. And then finally, following a pattern uh, of Philippians 2, where we, we see others as better than ourselves or we're willing to learn from anyone, even those we disagree with. Guys, this is such a special teaching. I'm so excited for you to watch it. I'm gonna turn it over to my friend, Broxy KV. Hello
2: friends, my name's Bruxy. I'm pastor at a church called The Meeting House in Ontario, Canada. And um, it's really a privilege to be invited into your homes and into your church family. Thanks for adopting me for today. It's one of the things I love about Jesus is that even if we haven't yet established a friendship, he's already made us family. And so times like this, when we interact with fresh faces and new people, it's as though we're going to a family reunion. I often feel like I've discovered brothers and sisters. We were separated at birth, but you know, even though we're getting to know each other afresh, we are already family. This is this beautiful vision that Jesus brings to the table is that he is going to unite. I mean, in the first century, when Jesus lived, he was uniting two groups of people who were sworn enemies. They, they were the Hatfields and McCoys of their day. They were the Jews and the Gentiles, specifically the Romans. The Romans were an invading and occupying force that were currently oppressing Israel and Jesus was going to take these two groups of people, the oppressed and the oppressor, the enemies, the ones with power and the ones without, and he was going to knit them together as brother and sister. When they called each other in the early church, brother, hey brother, hey sister, that wasn't just poetry, it wasn't just a way of being friendly. It was saying God's made us family, even though out there in the world we come from different systems, different experiences, different ways of thinking. Here, when we come into church, my goodness, in the first century, you could come into church and you might have a Roman centurion and, a, and, and an oppressed Jewish person coming in together and being family. Uh, you might have who out there in the world, someone who's a slave. And you might have someone who is the master of that slave and they come into church and the slave might be the elder, might be a leader and the master might be a new convert who's just learning. Everything changes. One of the ways that Jesus helps us push back against the oppressive systems of our our world, about all that's wrong out there, is not just advocating for change out there, but it's setting up an alternative model, which we need. We don't just need voices that are saying, here's what's wrong with my country, or with my culture, or with my world. We need people who will work together to set up an alternative model. It's called the kingdom. Jesus called it the kingdom. Uh, The kingdom of God, he would sometimes call it, or the kingdom of heaven, but it's not the kingdom of heaven as in where I go, where I die. It's the kingdom of heaven on earth. The kingdom of heaven on earth. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. This is what Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, We want his kingdom here. And so one of the ways we push back against the darkness of the world around us is by setting up this alternative model, this kingdom, where people are called family who were formerly enemies. Uh, They're called friends who formerly saw, looked down upon one another. And so I want us to take a few minutes just to look at one or two examples of how Jesus helps us do this. That's where we're headed for the next few minutes. and We're going to look at a couple passages of scripture. I think Luke six is where we're eventually headed. And so if you have your own Bibles, you want to open up or look for it on the screen, we're eventually going to get to Luke chapter six. In Luke six, Jesus is teaching what's called the Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where you have the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain are probably two examples of, of the kinds of teaching that Jesus would have taught many times. Jesus was an itinerant teacher. For three years, he would move around, disciple his own committed followers, but then also preach his gospel, his good news to crowds of thousands, and he would do that again and again and again. And so. We kind of have the best of that's been written down in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. And it's funny because sometimes people think they trip up, they'll say, uh, wait, Matthew says a Sermon on a Mountain and Luke says a Sermon on a Plain on Flatland. There's a contradiction. Which was it? No, no, Jesus taught many times in many different contexts. And, uh, and yet we get to see what he said that was a recurring theme and then what are some unique things we see in each of the four Gospels. Luke 6 then, and we'll start around... Hmm, verse 30, nope, verse 27. There we go, these are handy. Before we go there, let me point out that Matthew 5 is where we see some of the same teaching, and so it's good to compare the two. And I was listening to a sermon by a pastor who's well-known on the radio. I won't mention a name, but he he said he was going to be teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and I wanted to hear him because I knew he wasn't from a a tradition that focused a lot on Jesus' teaching and certainly his teaching about peace and enemy love. I hadn't heard that from him very often. And so when he said he's teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, I thought I better pay attention. He was teaching wonderfully. I mean, I love the diversity in the body of Christ. There are Christians I certainly disagree with about certain things, but when we disagree, that's the other beautiful thing about disagreeing as Christians is that we're, it's an in-house disagreement. We're disagreeing as family. We're sitting around the dinner table as family, secure in our place at the table, secure in our relationship with one another, having robust conversation. At least that's how it should be. Unfortunately, in some circles, it's more like the dysfunctional family where you're having an argument around the dinner table and whoever loses the argument gets kicked out of the home by the by the time dessert is over. We're, we're, we're heresy hunting. We're always saying, oh, who's the greatest threat? And we've got to get rid of them. But Jesus, his his, his power to unite is, is more powerful than our tendency to divide. He makes us family stamped at no erases. And that does give us the freedom to disagree as well, but to do so lovingly like we would with family. And so I I love this guy and um, I consider him a good brother and I love to learn from him. I think it's not only important to say, I will tolerate you and accept you, but to have a humble posture puts us in a learning disposition towards even people we disagree with. How can I not only approve or accept you but how can i learn from you from your experience even if i disagree about many things what can i learn from you when the apostle paul says consider others better than yourselves that's that's in philippians 2 that's a significant statement consider others better than yourselves don't even just go into it saying i will accept you but to say how can i learn from you i think a learning disposition is part of what that means So anyway, I was uh, listening to his uh, teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. I was learning lots of good stuff, but I was particularly curious what he would say when Jesus says, turn the other cheek and go the second mile. Um, Don't fight back. But Jesus doesn't say don't fight back and be passive. He says don't fight back in kind. Don't fight back with violence. Turning the other cheek is a thing you do. Um, in order to establish your value in the eyes of the other person and to give them an opportunity to kind of wake up going the second mile with a Roman who could compel you to go one mile and then you say I will choose to go the second mile that's not passivity doing nothing that's nonviolence, but it's still choosing to do something when you choose to go the second mile carrying a Roman's gear is the context Uh, if a, a Roman soldier could compel you to walk one mile carry his gear at the end of that mile he had to look for someone else to carry it for the next mile. But for you to then say, no, I'd love to keep carrying it a second mile. Well, that, that changes the dynamic. You see, the, the first mile was slavery, but the second mile is freedom, and you chose it. The, second, the first mile was oppressor and oppressed. The second mile is two human beings, and in fact, one person being kind to the other and loving him. Not treating him as the oppressor, but treating him as a human being, I'm happy you carry your stuff. That gives the enemy, in this case, Uh, what we could call an ethical shock treatment. Ethical shock treatment gives a person a moment to kind of wake up to what's really going on here. I'm playing the role of an oppressed person to this, but this is a human being and they're being kind to me. People won't always accept uh, ethical shock treatment. They won't always accept that as a gift and wake up to their oppression or to their violent behavior, but it does give them the opportunity. Turning the other cheek gives them the opportunity to realize what they're doing in striking jesus has another example he says if someone sues you for your outer garment give them that and then take off your inner garment as well Uh, (laughs) back in that day they only wore two garments so that would mean you're naked in other words in a court of law someone's trying to sue you for like the shirt off your back and obviously they're a person who has enough means this is oppression they have enough means to say i'm gonna get you and take you to court just to get what To, to drain what little left you have then say, well, if you, if you seem to need it that badly, let me not only give you this, let me give you all of my clothing. And then you stand there naked in court, that's shock treatment, right? Um, in, in that culture, being naked would not just ashamed shame to the person who was naked, it was a shame to the person who might see another person's nakedness. And so it, it uses this ethical shock treatment nonviolently to actually help people see the oppression inherent in the system and that they are participating in. So I heard this pastor, preaching on this passage and he said, you know, Jesus had turned the other cheek. You know, he, he, he taught nonviolent enemy love. Absolutely. It's one of the hallmarks of Jesus' teaching that he introduces into the ethic of this planet in a way that no other teacher, preacher, prophet, spiritual guru ever taught before Jesus or since. This, this one is pure Jesus. And, um, and this pastor taught this. And then he said, and here's the maneuver, He said, Jesus did clearly teach this, but remember that while Jesus taught that we shouldn't necessarily be going to war or being violent, but loving our enemies, Moses taught that there are times to go to war and David demonstrated that there are times to go to war and to slay your enemies. So we have to balance it out. Hmm, I thought, is that what the Christian ethic is? Is that how we are to make a difference in this world? Kind of balance Jesus with Moses and with David and with other Old Testament figures? Is Jesus just one of the heroes of the Bible and we balance him out with everyone else? No, no, Jesus said in his great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to, and he didn't actually say to the Bible, we believe in the authority of scripture, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. He put his own life, his own teaching, his own example right at the center. It Doesn't mean we don't listen to the rest of scripture. It's just, we read it differently. Now we read it as a pointer to Jesus, but Jesus is at the center of everything for us, including our ethic and how we live. So we don't try and balance Jesus out with any other part of the Bible all of it submits to Jesus and points to Jesus. The way John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The way the the, the the Christmas star led the Magi to Jesus, but in the end, they worshiped Jesus. They didn't worship the star or try and balance it out. So the Old Testament and the New Testament leads us to Jesus, but we follow Jesus. With that in mind, now let me read these words of Jesus in the parallel passage that that pastor was preaching on. He was preaching on Matthew five. And here in Luke 6, Jesus says, to you who are listening, I say this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then he goes on to say some things that are very similar to what he says in Matthew 5. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them as well. Give to people who ask from you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Well, that's a good point. There's supposed to be something about the, the love ethic of the followers of Jesus that people go, wow, there's something unique there. But you know what? Just treating people decently is not uniquely Christian. If we think just being a good and decent uh, Canadian citizen or a good and decent American citizen is what being a Christian is all about, that really is insulting to our non-Christian friends. Are we saying that all non-Christians are just so depraved that all we have to do is live like decent citizens and we'll stand out, no. Uh, We have to have an ethic that goes way beyond just being a good and decent citizen of any particular country. We have a love ethic that actually shocks people into how much we love even our enemies, which gives them an opportunity to snap out of it, see, and perhaps change.
1: I hope you enjoyed part one of Bruxy's teaching, and I wanna invite you back for next week to enjoy part two. Um, Here are some questions that will help you get into some dialogue with your spiritual family
0: right now. For this week's Dialogue and Discovery, read Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and then think about these questions. What stood out to you the most from the sermon and scripture? What questions do you have? What have you learned about loving God, Father, Spirit, or Jesus, and loving people? What do you think God is saying to you this week through this service or your circumstances? And how will you turn that into action? You can also find these questions in our show notes. And remember to take time to pray for one another this week. Thanks again for joining us this week. At Whitewater, we believe in creating an environment where you can belong before you believe. If you want to learn more about who we are and what we believe in, visit us at our website, whitewaterchurch.org. If you'd like to contribute to Whitewater financially, you can give online at whitewaterchurch.org give, or if you want to get involved in blessing our communities or are interested in joining one of our home churches, email us at info at whitewaterchurch.org. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.